The psalmist said, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord, and it is good to be here, and we're glad that you're here to worship uh, this morning. Let's stand and do the call to worship together. Let us worship God who has done great things. Let us worship God who has caused streams of mercy to flow in the wasteland. Let us worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Our gracious God, give us a sense of your presence as we gather in your house this morning. Give us gratitude as we remember your goodness. Give us hearts of repentance as we think on our sins. Give us joy as we remember your forgiveness. Enable us, Lord, to lift up our hearts in prayer and praise and worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. invite you to take a moment and share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today.
Just a couple of things uh, to mention that are printed in your bulletin. Easter morning has been our practice for many years. We'll be uh, offering baptism, and if you would like to be baptized Easter morning, let me know. We'll be holding a class in the next few weeks in preparation for that. Also, you'll notice that our email addresses have changed. Uh, We have been uh, inundated with a lot of spamming, hacking kinds of things, and uh, it's made it kind of almost impossible for us to operate. So the solution is to change our addresses. We hate to do that, but uh, you see them listed here. They're pretty close to what they were, but just a little bit different. And uh, we just want to make sure that you're aware of that as we move forward. Uh, there are. I also want to mention that um, you may be aware, remember, the youth group has participated in the 30-hour famine, part of World Vision over the last number of years. They are doing so again this year. And this will be in May, and they spend 30 hours uh, in uh, prayer and gathering and and, uh, giving up food, obviously, as a part of that. And the proceeds, the proceeds go to Help World Vision. And they get contributions. They will probably be talking with some of you about contributing to that. The Wesleyan Kids for Missions group that meets every month is also participating, and they have put a jar in the back foyer and encourage you to put uh, change or... They'll take bills, they said, uh, if you want to put those in as well. Now, just to help out in uh, what we send to World Vision as a part of 30-Hour Famine. So we appreciate your help with that. And also, for those of you who are reading, uh, participating in the community Bible experience, we're reading through the New Testament during the season of Lent. Uh, some have asked to pr- perhaps having a, uh, a group that gets together once a week or so to talk about the various readings. So if you would be interested in being a part of that, uh, let me know or let us know in the office over the next couple of days, and we'll see if we can uh, organize something that uh, would bring folks together to have a chance to talk about what we're reading. I want to invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let's pray together. Powerful and forgiving Lord, by enduring the pain of the cross... You have shown us the price love must pay for taking sin seriously. The nails, the crown, the humiliation, mockery, and shame you went through delivered us from the stronghold of sin and enabled us to live in the freedom only you can give. That is the reality of the cross, but not the reality of our lives. In our contentment, we forsake the transforming work of the cross in our lives. In our disobedience, we nullify the redeeming and forgiving power of the cross. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we do not take our sin as seriously as you do. For what it costs us daily is nothing in comparison to what you have already paid. Help us to reflect on the mercies of your cross. And as we do, give us the strength and grace to take up our own and to follow. In confessing our sins, let us hear your words of assurance. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Amen.
The Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one has a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could it have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain upon it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to stand as the ushers come forward and we'll sing the Gloria Patri. loving God, we give back to you as you have given so freely to us. Pray that you would use our meager gifts for the building of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to offer your prayers at the altar rail, I invite you to join me.
Father, we come today and we offer our prayers because we believe you are good and merciful, full of truth and grace, and you call us to pray. We come in gratitude for your gifts that we often ignore and yet would be unable to live without. We thank you for the blessing of life and family, friends, the joy of creating, of work, of all of the ways in which you bless our lives. We thank you. Father, we also come today recognizing our need for you. We pray for ourselves, for the ways in which we struggle to follow you, for the times of rebellion, for those sins that dog us and too often enslave us. Forgive us. And in your grace, strengthen us. Father, we also pray for those among us who are struggling with needs, body, mind, soul, spirit. We pray for family and friends of Bonnie Szymanski and others who are wrestling with the reality of death. We pray for your mercy. We pray for a sense of your presence and support and strength and comfort through your Holy Spirit and through your people. Father, we pray for all who are struggling with health concerns. Pray for Bruce and Jeannie, for Donna and Bill, for Bev and Edna. Linda and Micah, for Bob and Bill, for Crystal and Emily, and the others who are on our minds today. We pray for your healing power in each of them. And may they too know your presence, your grace. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world many of whom face daily severe opposition, persecution, even the threat of death. We pray that you will strengthen them and sustain them. We pray that you will protect them. We pray, Father, that their lives of faith would inspire us in our walk of faith. We pray for peace in the Ukraine, in Sudan, in other places of the world where there is little peace. We pray for people who are struggling with famine and drought and disease and ask for your mercy. And we pray that as your children, you will help us to know how to be channels of your blessing to people in such great need. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for calling us to pray. We offer our prayers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross for our sins and who rose again to give us life and is coming back to take us to be with him. And the one who leaves us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Gospel reading is from Luke 20. And I invite you to stand, if able, as we consider this story from Jesus' life. Luke 20. One day he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? They said, who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from people? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from people, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable, how a man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately, because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. We probably should have known better. We were warned. People told us that if you have a a little dog, they have inferiority complexes. And they're always trying to prove that they're in charge. After almost 14 years, I can testify to that truth. Little dogs do want to be in charge. And we have had this continual struggle of who's going to run things. I'll leave it up to you who you think wins the, won the battle and who wins the battle most of the time. But I was thinking about that just recently because last week, Cindy was up in Rochester with her mom and dad at the hospital for a few days. And so I was home with our dog. And I, I, as, supper, as supper time came, I thought, all right, I'm, I'm going I'm to take charge here. We've been having some trouble with him. He'd gotten sick a while back, and he couldn't eat some of his dog food, and so we had given him some human food, and he decided he really liked that human food, and he didn't want to go back to his dog food. So we were having this struggle about that, and I decided this is the time we're going to put an end to this battle. I'm going to win this thing. So I put his food out for him, and I went in the other room, and all of a sudden, I heard this, this loud banging, crashing noises. And I'm hearing his, his little collar with the stuff on it clanging all over the place. And I walked back into the kitchen, and he had strewn his food all over the floor. I mean, it was everywhere. And he's standing there looking at me. And, you know, you never know what quite is going through these dogs' minds, but you can guess. Sometimes you don't want to know, but you can guess. And he's looking at me like, you really want to do this? All right. I can do this all day. Come on, give me your best shot. Let's go. And I decided very quickly that I probably wasn't going to win that battle with him, not right then. What interests me about that is that it's not just 10-pound canines that struggle with control. So do you and I. We struggle with control too. We struggle with control in our relationships. We struggle about control in our work. We struggle about control with God. It is the, one of the marks of our human nature. That in our relationship with God, we want to be in control. And it, hasn't, it didn't start with us. We aren't the first people to wrestle with this. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when sin entered the world. And one of the places where we see this struggle for control is in this passage from Luke's gospel that we've just read. Here's Jesus teaching in the temple. It's, the, it's this last week of his life. And he is telling people the good news. He, he is sharing with them who God is. He's done healings and miracles. He has tried to help them understand the nature of God in a culture and in a religious environment that has warped the nature of God. I imagine Jesus may be saying to them what he says to the people that Luke records in the fourth chapter of Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth. That the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and, 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 and good things for the, for the poor and the oppressed. And, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To tell the good news. To bring about a, a clear, pure image of who God is. And the people are eating it up. And in the midst of this teaching about the goodness of God and the kingdom, in walk the religious leaders. And and they completely miss everything Jesus is saying. And they go to him and say, who gave you the authority to do this? Who put you in charge? Who said you get to control this situation? 
It's fascinating, isn't it, that here's Jesus talking about the kingdom. He's talking about the nature of God. He's trying to help people understand who God is, and they completely miss it because all they can think about is control, power. I suspect that in the back of their minds, they're thinking, or maybe even in the front of their minds, what's the, what's, what's the agenda that Jesus has here? Because everyone has an agenda. No one does things just because you like people. No, no one does these things just because you want to paint a good image of God. There's always a hidden agenda because that's how they live their lives. Everything they do is about a hidden agenda. Everything's about power. Everything's about control. And obviously, that must be the case with Jesus too. And in response, Jesus gives them what seems to me a very un-Jesus-like answer. You know how we get Jesus, we put him in boxes, and we think, this is the Jesus that we like. This is the Jesus we have shaped, usually in our image. And we like the Jesus who, who does what we want him to do and says the things we want him to say. This is the Jesus picture that we have. And then we read the scriptures and we find this box we've created shattered. And here Jesus does it again. I, I would expect them to say, well, let's talk about that. But instead, he sort of gets back up in their faces and says, look, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. That sounds like something we would say, maybe not something Jesus would say. And he says, how about it? John the Baptist, was he sent from God or did he just make all this stuff up on his own? And the, the religious leaders say, just a minute. And they walk over and they do a little huddle and they're saying, all right, I don't know what to do here. If we say he's from God, then he's going to ask us, why didn't you believe him? If we say oh, he made it all up himself, the people are going to stone us because they think John was the greatest thing in the world. And, of course, they understand, too, that if they acknowledge that John is from God, then they have to acknowledge that Jesus is from God because they are intimately connected. You can't have one without the other. In fact, the reason they reject Jesus is because they rejected John and vice versa. And so they come back and say, we don't know. And Jesus says, fine. You don't want to answer my question? I'm not going to answer your question. And sometimes wisdom says people don't really want the answer. They don't really want to know truth. They just want to make sure that we know they're right and we're wrong. They just want to say something to say, gotcha. And Jesus isn't going to play their games. So he says, fine. But he still... Doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He turns to the people and says, let me tell you a story. And he tells them this, this story about an owner of a vineyard and the tenants and s- servants coming to try to collect what the owner is deserved. And they keep throwing them out and finally he sends the son and they kill him. And you scratch your head and you say, what? What would make them think that, that killing the son would cause the owner to say, well, I guess that's it. I'll have to give that one up. Don't they know that would incite him more than anything? They're so captured by their greed and their desire for power and control that they can't even think straight. And you see that in people throughout the scriptures. People who are so enamored with power and control and and the things of this world that they don't think straight. And they do crazy things. And you think, why would they do that? And then, of course, we do a little self-examination and we say, yeah, okay, now I understand. Because we all can get caught up in that. Isn't it fascinating that they get to the end of this and they're upset because Jesus tells this parable that they know is about them. But they are only concerned about the fact that he tells a parable that puts them in a bad light, not the fact that he's actually putting his finger on something that they need to change. And so the story that ends with they kill the son leads to the, fair, the religious leaders going out to plot to kill the son. And they don't even see it. And the end of the story really shocks the people. That the owner of the vineyard, and I think they all understand that the owner of the vineyard represents God, 
And the owner of the vineyard comes and says, okay, that's it. We're, we're getting rid of these people, these tenants. We're killing them. And we'll find some other people to do this. Now, I think on one hand, and he goes back to the vineyard image that we found in Isaiah. On the one hand, Jesus is saying, if you as Jews, my people, are going to reject my son, I'll find some other people who will accept him. And they say, may it never be, God forbid. But I also think there is just this sense of, would God really do that? Would God, as the owner of the vineyard, really do that to people who reject him? And Jesus says, yes. Why else would, would this stuff about the cornerstone be spoken in Scripture? And you look at the cross and this, this means of, of grace and mercy and redemption and salvation and love and all the things that we embrace if rejected, becomes the means of judgment and condemnation. And we don't like to think of it that way. We don't like to think of of the reality of the wrath of God and the judgment of God, but the truth is there are consequences to the decisions we make about God. And Jesus is trying to make that clear to both the religious leaders and all the people gathered there That rejecting him has consequences. If all that we can think about is control. If our passion in life is controlling life. We are not moving toward the cross. We're moving away from the cross. Because the cross is about coming and surrendering and giving up control. The call of the cross is to surrender. Jesus says, we take up our crosses, we deny ourselves, we follow him. And the cross is the place of the ultimate surrender of Christ. And if Christ accomplishes God's purposes in the world through the cross, then what would make us think that God would say and would expect anything less of people who are followers of Christ, who goes to the cross. It's hard for us. We like control. It's hard to give up control. It's hard to let go. And sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. But more often than not, the struggles in our lives are rooted in our desire to control. To control our relationship with people, to control our relationship with God. The call of the cross is to surrender it. To give up our control. What we don't realize is that giving up control that feels like loss, feels like losing, is the only way to truly win. Only when we give up control can the Spirit truly fill us. And the the Spirit control us. And only as the Spirit is in us can we know all that God desires for us to be. All that we were created to be. Only through the Spirit can we have life and joy and peace and all that God wants for us. But as we keep hanging on and controlling, we are in essence shoving away the Spirit and walking away from the cross. So what What do we do to give up control? What what might that look like? Well, I think for one thing, we we live with a spirit of willingness to learn from unexpected people. 
know, we, we have our expectations about the ways in which God can speak into our lives. And often, those are pretty narrow. We, we put people into classifications sometimes without even realizing it. And, and we, we start thinking, these are people that God might speak to me, through, through whom God might speak to me, but I don't see any way God could speak to me through them. And I'm telling you, giving up control is being willing to let these people be channels of God to speak into our lives. However we classify one another, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, young, old, giving one of the ways in which we give up control is to say, God, through whomever you want to speak, speak into my life. There are people that you want to bring to me who have a word from, from you for me. There are people whose lives are, are, are challenged to me and, and they're closer to you than I am and it's hard to admit that, but I need to learn from them. Years ago when the... Um, Railroads were big in this country at the beginning of the 20th century. They built Grand Central Station in New York, and there were the porters there wore red caps, and so they called them red caps. And uh, their job was to carry luggage for people on and off the trains, people going all over the country, people arriving from other countries. And, and the porters, they didn't make very much money. They weren't, they were kind of you know, menial work. They were looked down on. And one of the porters, Ralston Young, particularly hated his job. He hated being a red cap. And, and he would, in fact, if people would ask him what he did, he would tell them that he worked in leather. Because they said it was close he could get to not lying totally and yet not telling them that the leather he worked in were the bags that he carried for other people. And then he met Christ. And his life was totally changed. And, and he became an influence and a witness for Christ at Grand Central Station. And as people, he'd see people who looked downcast and he would talk to them about their life and, and they would confide in him. And he said, can I pray for you? And they would, most of the people would love that. And, and he became, built a reputation. They called him uh, the Red Cap Preacher. And, and, and he would pray with people all the time. And in fact, people would come to him and say, hey, would you pray for me? Would you pray for this person in my life, family member, friend? And, and pretty soon some of them said, we ought to have a little gathering of prayer. And so they found an, an empty car on one of the side tracks. And they fixed it up a little bit. And they invited him to come and to get together when they could. And he would pray over these people. And then some businessmen got together and said, let's rent some office space in Manhattan so that Ralston can come and we can have some organized prayer gatherings. And he can pray for us and he can teach us about prayer and teach us about Christ. And amazing things happened because of his willingness to be used for Christ. But you know what makes me even more, amazes me even more, is that there were businessmen who said, this guy who carries bags down at the train station has something to teach us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. No wonder miraculous things happened and lives were changed. A sense of, of openness about the unexpected. And I think we also need to embrace the uncomfortable. You know, there is uncomfortable in, the, in life that sin and, and that we obviously don't embrace. But there are lots of experiences that happen in life that are outside of what we would consider make us feel comfortable. And I'm convinced that those are the places where God tends to speak to us most effectively. And if we're going to give up control of our lives, there needs to be a willingness for God to speak into our lives through circumstances and situations that are uncomfortable for us. You know, we, maybe it has to do with things in the church that the way we do worship or the, or the way that we, 
we interact with each other or you know, maybe it's a theological system that we might be a little bit uncomfortable with. And yet there are things that people have to teach us. Some of you may know Donald Miller, uh, author, he's written Blue Like Jazz, other books. And he, he writes in a way that challenges the church, some traditional ways of thinking. He asks a lot of good questions. And I, and I, I like a lot of the things he says. It's convicting, but there's a need for that. But recently he wrote in a, in a blog that he, he just doesn't like going to church. He said, that's, that's just not the way I experience God. It's not the way I learn. So if you ask me, do I go to church? He said, really not very much. It's just not the way I learn. And when I read that, I thought, I think he's missing something here. Quite frankly, what does that have to do with anything? Maybe it's the places where we say, that's not the way I learn, where God is going to speak into our lives most effectively. And I'm not picking on him because, quite frankly, we all wrestle with that. You know, we come to church, there are things we like and we don't like. There's things that we do that make us comfortable and uncomfortable. We all experience that. It's hard for me when we go on vacation and we go to other churches. Quite frankly, too much of the time I spend judging what they do or what they don't do. And I'm thinking, why are they doing that? What is that about? Are you kidding me? Come on. I keep thinking, oh, I wish we were back home. And I can't tell you, you the Lord has smacked me upside the head and said, what are you doing? I had things that I needed to say to you in that worship service. Who cares if you uh, liked it or didn't like it or made you comfortable or uncomfortable? I want to speak to you through that. And instead of a spirit of judgment, I need a spirit of openness. And we all wrestle with that. But if we're going to be open to God, if we're going to let go of control, it will almost assuredly involve letting God move us to places that make us feel uncomfortable. Because in the uncomfortable places, we either run from Him or we trust Him. See, giving up what we want, giving up control, is either going to, it's either going to bring fear to us or it's going to inspire trust in us. And if we understand God, as the scriptures tell us, we don't have any reason to fear. Because we're trusting the God who loves us, who created us, who went to the cross for us. And what feels like losing is winning. But it's hard. Craig Barnes says that you know, there are those times in life where it, everything is exactly where we want it to be. You know, family's in good shape, our job is in good shape, our relationships are in good shape, our health, everything is exactly where we want it to be. And we just want to yell out, okay, nobody move. Just, just stop. Everybody just stay right there. And he says, if that's what we're thinking, we better take a picture Because more than likely, God is going to call us to another phase, another step of abandonment. Of taking our hands off of this life that we want to control. And he's going to move us in in places and in ways that we really wish he wouldn't. Until we've been through a little bit and we see what moving to the next place does for our relationship with him and our journey with him. It's hard letting go. We like being in control. But if we are going to be the people God created us to be, if we are going to experience joy and peace 
and the life that God created us to live, then we will need to let go, to trust him. Because he doesn't want us to settle for where we are. He wants us to live in the so much more that he has designed for every one of us. Gracious Father, you know our struggle with control. We justify it, we excuse it. Lord, help us. Help us to trust you enough to let go. Father, this morning there may well be one particular point in our life that you put your finger on and said to us, I want you to give me that. And your grace, give us the strength to open our hands and to let go and to trust you. the grace of Christ, we pray. Amen.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.